Hello, and welcome to the Chess Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Gretchen Winter. On behalf of CHEST, I would like to welcome you to the CHEST Journal Podcast. My name is Gretchen Winter, and I am the editor of the CHEST Podcast Session. Today, I am joined by Dr. David Shulman as my co-host. Dr. Shulman is a pulmonologist and sleep medicine physician who serves as a professor in the Division of Pulmonary, Allergy, Critical Care, and Sleep Medicine at Emory University in Atlanta. He has directed their Pulmonary and Critical Care Fellowship Program for 14 years. Dr. Shulman also served as the program chair of the CHEST 2018 Scientific Program Committee and the 2019 CHEST Congress in Thailand, and he is currently the president-designate of CHEST. Thank you for joining us today for what will be a terrific discussion of the establishment of a pulmonary and critical care medicine subspecialty in China. We are fortunate to have Dr. Rinley Chow and Dr. Darcy Marcinek as our guests today. Dr. Chow is a professor of clinical medicine in the Division of Pulmonary, Critical Care, and Sleep Medicine at the University of Southern California. He also serves as the Associate Editor for Clinical Respiratory Journal and a CHESS Global Advisor. He is an international advisor to the Chinese Medical Doctor Association of Respiratory Doctors and has served as a visiting professor to 20 Chinese medical schools. Dr. Marcinek is an expert in clinical exercise physiology COPD, and pulmonary rehabilitation. He is a past president of CHEST and the Canadian Thoracic Society, and he served as a founding steering committee member of Canada's National Lung Health Framework. Drs. Chows and Marcinek and their colleagues wrote the third report from the China CHEST PCCM Fellowship Project on the strategic establishment of pulmonary and critical care medicine as a subspecialty in China. For a bit of background for our listeners, in December of 2016, the National Health Commission of China announced that they were launching formal subspecialty training, or fellowships, as an integrated component of the postgraduate medical education system in China. Pulmonary and critical care was chosen as one of three subspecialties to pilot, in addition to cardiology and neurosurgery. Formal enrollment of a pulmonary and critical care fellowship began in September of 2018, and in September of 2019, they expanded to 10 different subspecialty fellowships. So, Dr. Chows and Marcinek, in the report, you discussed how a shortage of intensivists and studies into disease seen in ICUs and the care provided in ICUs ultimately led to your decision to start a combined pulmonary and critical care medicine fellowship. Can you explain to our listeners why you opted to design a combined fellowship? Here, we just follow American model of pulmonary critical care medicine. The PCCM, or in short, has been considered an American, peculiarly American hybrid by Dr. Martin Tobin since the late 90s. But the rationale behind combining the two specialties is uh, there's uh, up to 75% overlap in the curriculum and scope of practice uh, between pulmonary medicine and critical care. 
I might add that combining both the pulmonary and critical care medicine wasn't necessarily viewed as the only means of uh, providing optimal care and uh, training a, a workforce for a country that hadn't prior subspecialty training uh, programs in this area, but it was one that was viewed as being very successful. There's also one that, in terms of uh, the overlap with pulmonary physicians, having a, a pretty grounded understanding and expertise in physiology and pathogenesis of various diseases, chronic diseases for which an event or a stay in a critical care unit might only be a point in time um, for a patient. And so that ability to not only treat the acute illness, but potentially prevent, but also provide the care following someone's recovery uh, were also viewed as being very important. This is David. One of the things you mentioned in the paper that I thought was very interesting was that you'd actually done a, a workflow analysis of some sort, as I recall, trying to break down exactly what the different components parts of a critical care medicine provider's job was, and you found that overwhelmingly, or at least the the majority of it, was an overlap with respirology, which I think also helped to guide the decision. Is that a a fair fair characterization? Yes, it is. Yes, definitely. We we actually studied this before we made the decision, and uh, really, if you think about uh, what you do in ICU, if really the patient needs surgery, the surgery is done in the OR. And then it is really the post-op medical care that needs to be in ICU, even in a surgical ICU. Of course, in medical ICU, it's really based on internal medicine. Is the goal in China to have every type of ICU, for instance, medical ICUs, surgical, trauma, neurologic, etc., to be staffed by pulmonary and critical care medicine physicians or to eventually have trained intensivists of other specialties running the non-medical ICUs? Uh, here, before we discuss it, let me, let me give a, uh, just a bit of background in China. In China, the major difference from America is uh, the ICU or any ward belong to a department not to the hospital. So it's run by the department chief. So if, if this ICU trying to be independent department, but that doesn't really work well. It has been debating for decades whether the hospital should have a combined, like a general ICU for everything, or should have a like a, what they call the specialty ICU, like you listed there, medical, surgical, trauma, neuro. So far, in the large hospital, large hospital in China, we're talking about three, 4,000 beds. The largest is like 10,000 beds. Obviously, one ICU is not going to serve everything. So most uh, still medical, surgical, trauma, and neuro ICU, like, uh, like uh, in America. But the thing is... Uh, People have an independent ICU or is the ICU treated as a subspecialty ICU really have an administrative meaning uh, plus some uh, even financial uh, interest under, underlying the, the, the structure. Our training uh, includes everything. If necessary, our fellow graduated can stuff for any ICU. You know, as, uh, as Professor Chow mentioned, the 
issue of the need and the capability and capacity is, is a little bit different with the characteristics of the healthcare system. So it's, it's common to see very large hospitals, uh, far larger than we would have uh, in North America, as commonplace. So what's a means of trying to, on a system-wide and in a rapid way, provide a workforce, a trained expert workforce, that is able to um, uh, deliver and lead the provision of optimal care for, for patients? And so much like in the United States, where pulmonary critical care medicine is a dominant presence in delivery of critical care, this is the model that was uh, chosen. And it, and it wasn't taken lightly. There was... Uh, much discussion and interaction with uh, leadership in China prior to the decision in 2012 to move forward and then our formal agreement being signed in 2013 um, in terms of, of the model. And as part of this has moved on, we'll talk about this, I'm sure, you know, there's been some evaluation and learnings uh, and as well as uh, uh, changes in how the program was initially envisioned in order to uh, you know, move forward with those uh, overall goals. Wonderful. Um, are you training people to act primarily as respirologists and to care for diseases like COPD and sleep apnea, or will the pulmonary and critical care medicine trained physicians be expected to do both critical care and pulmonology? Oh, sir. we expect them to, to be capable to do both, Yes, the curriculum, the rotations, and the structure of the program uh, is exactly uh, with both fields uh, uh, in mind, and it allows someone to have a variety of, of practice, but uh, yes, both. Can you tell us more about the structure of your fellowship, how long it is, what training physicians complete before the fellowship, as well as how many trainees have completed the subspecialty training to date, and how many programs are up and running with trainees now? Yeah, this, the structure of fellowship is pretty much the same as in America. Three years is the length. And uh, this is a little bit addition. Before 2016, that's when the national program started, Chest already joined with the Chinese Thoracic Society, to start uh, our own. That was way before the national program. It started, like Dr. Martinez was saying, 2012. So by the time the national program started, we already have three batch of graduates, 54 in total. And right now, the fellowship is running in 79 hospitals as a training site. And total enrollment is 400 per year. I think one of the advantages that we've had is that with the program starting, officially starting in 2013, and our focus on initial sites of expertise with eight hospitals and then 12 hospitals, we're able to ensure that the design, the delivery, the supports, the training, as well as um, evaluating competence and competencies in the uh, fellows who were graduating were on target. So that background provided some comfort to the system in China, and that's why PCCM was chosen as one of the three subspecialties to roll out nationwide. 
but also based on our success in the evaluation at those early stages, it provided a good foundation to move forward. One of the things you mentioned in the paper, which may be what you were commenting on, is that while the aspirations were to have a three-year program, the, the workforce disparities that exist in China, meaning the, the population for which you have to care versus the number of individuals currently competent to manage people with respirology or critical care problems, there's a, a big schism there. And so one of the things that you opine in the paper is that you're looking at developing a condensed one-year training program, and I'd love to hear a little bit more about that also, because, you know, we, at minimum, we require 18 months, at least in the U.S., um, ACGME requires 18 months of clinical experience at the minimum to become um, double trained in respirology or pulmonology and critical care. So I'd love to hear a little bit more. I understand the need for it, but I'd like to um, hear a little bit more about the imagining of that 12-month track. Yeah, that 12-month track is a uh, if you think about it, the Chinese population is about four times bigger than America. Yet, so far, the PCCM training is only one-third of America. So it's not going to be enough. You, you, you cannot train enough number of uh, PCCM specialists to serve the country. So that is rational to create this one-year condensed program. Uh, targeting like uh, the 79 hospitals for the national program are all from a medical school university based in large metropolitan area. And then the one-year condensed program is uh, designed for a smaller hospital, like a secondary hospital. And then the number is about five times bigger than the three-year program. The initial three-year program is still being offered and serves as our foundation and our ultimate goal. But in order to provide, you know, a practical and, and sort of personalized for the environment, the one-year option is also in addition to um, being provided. Yeah. And is this available to people coming right out of training, or meaning that they've finished their, their medical education and, and perhaps some basic internal medicine, or are these even for intended for people who've been out in practice but want to get some formal documentation that they have advanced training and competency in these dedicated areas? They should have all finished uh, uh, resident training in internal medicine or other specialty. And then here, again, the difference is... Uh, uh, the, all the physicians in China are employed by hospital. So if the hospital decide, like, uh, uh, we want uh, this physician to be trained uh, rather than the physician themselves. Moving on, how are the trainees in these programs evaluated to ensure their competence? And how are the fellowship programs themselves evaluated and monitored? Uh, for individual uh, evaluation, we set up a website. At the end of each rotation month, the staff uh, has to evaluate the, uh, the, the trainee, the fellows. And uh, the other thing is each time the trainee finish uh, a procedure, they have to log in. And then the signature from their supervising physician has to be within 24 hours to ensure accuracy. The program evaluation now is uh, the fellowship training is run, is supervised by the Chinese Medical Doctor Association, 
and they organize an annual inspection. Right now, it's actually every six months they, they, they organize an inspection to each side. And also, there's a way for the fellow to evaluate their supervising physician and the program, just like the model of ACTME. When our pilot programs were initiated in 2013-2014 with the 8 and then 12 sites, uh, we held a, a number of uh, day-long workshops with all the program directors and the heads of the departments uh, sharing material, developing curricula, and um, various structures so that facilities, the program directors, uh, the training requirements, uh, who could be uh, enrolled in programs, the evaluation, not only of the fellows, but also the uh, training programs and institutions were aligned and on target. These were supplemented with on-site visits with uh, typically at least two individuals, and that uh, sort of would be, um, you know, Professor Chow, myself, uh, Stephanie Levine, current uh, president of uh, CHESS, Jack Buckley, and Mark Rosen, who sadly uh, passed uh, last year. And so there was a lot of uh, effort and time with uh, visits to each of these institutions where we would, you know, do a hands-on on-site assessment, provide uh, some backup, uh, answer questions, but also uh, we had some difficult discussions sometimes because some of the principles and, and teaching principles were, at least on the surface, at odds with some of the traditional teaching methods that, that had been utilized in the past. And so in order to adhere to and meet what these requirements are, there had to be uh, you know some alignment and, and um, adopting changes uh, from the Chinese training programs and faculty um, as well, which is not easy, but, I, but to their credit, uh, they were very receptive. And I think at this stage, they now have, as, as uh, Renly mentioned, their own committee that does the evaluation of the 79 sites that continues with those principles and practices. So can I ask another question related to selection of individuals? Because, I, 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 again, this is all fairly novel to me, and I, while I have some cognizance of what happened there, do people self-select? If I am a, a trainee in China interested in pursuing a career in pulmonary and critical care medicine, um, what's the process? Do I have to apply for something, and, and do then the individuals in these programs select folks from around the country to come much like it is in, in, in North America and elsewhere, or is it managed differently? They have to apply. The training started in September. The application started in March. And they have to submit the application to the central site in the Chinese Medical Doctor Association. And then their department chair and the has to submit a reference letter. And then there's a review process. They're very similar to American. And, and also similar is that the programs themselves clearly would want to get the best and the brightest uh, medical residents to not only be interested, but to apply. And so during many of these site visits, we would meet with uh, medical residents who are trying to uh, decide what they want to do in the future to help them understand what a career in pulmonary critical care medicine uh, was how this new program, new to China program, would position them, train them so they would be not only viewed as experts, but 
demonstrate that expertise in the area. And so uh, a, a lot of it, uh, there's differences in how it's operationalized. A lot of the principles are very similar to what we do in North America. Can you speak a little more, though? So, Darcy, one of the things you mentioned, both you and Renly had mentioned, the similarity of the curriculum. But presumably there are different population needs. The distribution of disease states, for example, the causes of different diseases are different in many parts of China and in North America, where we're, uh, there may be technologies, for example, like interventional, which are much more broadly available in North America than in China. Were there, I mean, what sort of thought went into potentially tweaking curricula to be more regionally sensitive, to be more regionally applicable? Uh, well, maybe I'll start and then Renly can continue. The, you know, we had initially uh, thought, and I think naively, that these differences would be significant and impactful, but we learned quite quickly, and in particular at the 12 sites, which are, you know, the top-notch institutions. These are highly ranked. Uh, you know, they look a lot like our uh, teaching hospitals that we would have in, in North America, although most of them are much, much bigger. But the availability of things like uh, interventional physiology testing and so forth sleep laboratories is, is all there. There may be little differences. Our approach was to ensure that the programs and the trainees were fully competent and trained in all of the areas. And so while there are some differences, so for instance, lung cancer prevalence is very high, some differences in infectious diseases, some uh, inherited genetic diseases, cystic fibrosis, for instance, would not be as common. We wanted to ensure that they were trained in all of these areas, and so the curriculum very much mirrors what we were training in the United States or Canada, and the exposure, including sleep, interventional, and so forth, also mirrored. So if there were any deficiencies, we would do workarounds where those uh, deficiencies were met and in potentially even in going to other institutions. Renly? Absolutely uh, right. Uh, initially, we did try to, like, uh, minimum, uh, for example, cystic fibrosis, uh, which is considered non-existing in China. We, we still included it because uh, the rationale for curriculum uh, is to set a minimum requirement <laughs> rather than the, uh, the maximum. So you, as a specialist in PCCM, you have at least have to have this much uh, knowledge. And then if you want uh, like to go further in one direction or several other directions, then that's after the fellowship. So for the fellowship training, we do require, if they, they don't, in a particular training site, they don't have enough exposure, you can uh, rotate in other institution. For example, at UIC, we have uh, made the thing agree. We actually have uh, three fellows rotating here, taking a three-month period just to see whatever they don't see at their own institution. Can you please explain to our listeners how faculty and department leadership were trained to start and lead these fellowships? Yeah, here, before the national program, uh, we have been running the fellowship on a civil basis. It's called the China Chest PCCM Fellowship. That was the 12th hospital Darcy was talking about. In this 12th hospital, 
the expert from a chess actually visited, gave a detailed talk, a workshop, a seminar in each of these. Those obviously is targeting the leadership and the faculties. So by the time the national program started, pretty much ready, all they did in the beginning is have the 79 uh, hospitals send their program director, even department chair, to spend a week in one of these 12 hospitals and to see how, how the, they do the teaching and the evaluation and all that. They just simply follow the, whatever has been established. By the time they transition the China Chest Fellowship into the national program, we again organized a workshop on each specific topic about training, like a final gift to the national program. I think one of the things we had hoped would occur, and I think in looking back was successful, was focusing on some key programs uh, at the beginning, those eight and then 12 programs. These are leading institutions with top-notch experts, very highly motivated, engaged to implement a program uh, that would be seen as and able to deliver uh, excellent training and not only within China, but also have credibility beyond. And so the time and the effort we spent with individual faculties, the selection, the appointment of the program directors, getting the buy-in from department leadership. In most of these cases, we would meet with the president of the hospital or the university um, and have discussions with them. And so there was a lot of work put in uh, to ensure that not only the curriculum and things on the ground and the rotations, but also the support for the program director, administrative support, institutional support was there and genuine and authentic. And I think that's since paid off. Once those 12 sites were on-site and highly functional, that served as a very good uh, basis to pivot and ramp up towards the 79 uh, sites that it is right now. Now, in the report, you mentioned four different lessons that you learned from the experience in China. The first is that pulmonary medicine and critical care medicine share a common foundation of medicine and that pulmonary and critical care medicine is a modern structure that streamlines training and also strengthens respiratory medicine. For the near future, do you think that all critical care training will take place in combined fellowships or do you anticipate that critical care medicine standalone training may become available? There is still critical care training standalone program, and they are following the British model. They try to start from a residency training. They call it a critical care residency. But uh, uh, now they gradually realize that even in British uh, system, uh, resident training, for example, for internal medicine is a three-year, but they can enroll into uh, critical care training by the end of the second year. And then if it's uh, internal medicine residency, then they take one year anesthesiology during fellowship. Fellowship is uh, like seven years in British in England. And then if uh, the resident background is anesthesiology, then they have to do one year internal medicine. So 
in another word, really the, the subspecialty training should be based on residence training. So I think the critical care program uh, gradually uh, understand this and trying to adapt this. Uh, but uh, the majority, I think, is going to end up like in America. In America, if you look at the job of uh, publish a paper every year, summarize uh, the number of training in each program. So in the critical care and the pulmonary disease uh, uh, training program, uh, you can see since the late 90s, for the last at least 10 years, every year the PCCM training is at least 70, 75% of the total number. So uh, then we we think this explains it because really in ICU, the practice is still based on internal medicine, although function at a higher level. So you do need a, you know, a sound internal medicine training to be good at the pulmonary and critical care. I think the critical care program initially don't accept this, but once they publish their own curriculum, I point out to them, you know, if you look at your uh, uh, curriculum, uh, at least 70% of your content is medicine. So I think uh, probably the two prom- program will run in parallel for some time. The one is the critical care now is also defined as a subspecial training. You have to have a resident training completed, preferably internal medicine. And because of this, uh, it's most likely the trend will be in the future will be like in America. The majority will be PCCM, although they 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 both are, are are running right now. The profile's changing a little bit, and I'd love to get Darcy's take on this as somebody who knows both systems probably better than anybody else on this call. Um, we're seeing more and more people outside of pulmonary doing critical care in, in North America, uh, infectious disease critical care, nephrology critical care, cardiology critical care. There are people who are just doing two years of straight critical care, even out of internal medicine. And I believe this is because you know some folks who are longstanding in PCCM have decided as they get a little older, they may want to do a little less CCM and a little more P, and so you're creating a little bit of an imbalance there. It also is probably in part because of the aging of the U.S. population, and I'm guessing the world population, and that the you know and the relative sickening of people in hospitals as opposed to elsewhere. That there's more of a need for critical care. Do you envision that diversification following in China in the next five, ten, fifteen, twenty years? Well, I think um, as you mentioned, it does vary around the world. So, for instance. Unlike uh, the United States, where 70 or 75 percent of uh, the healthcare providers are PCCM trained, uh, and that was higher, you know, 10 years ago, it was uh, in the high 70s, nearly 80 percent. In Canada, for instance, it would be different, or more parallels what's in the UK or in Europe. We were less interested in trying to define or win a competition in terms of who was best or who is most able or we're better than you, what we perceived when we were uh, interacting with our colleagues in China and becoming uh, more aware of their environment and the need, that this seemed uh, something that could provide a uh, solution. And in rolling out the program, and I think now that we've got nearly seven years since the pilot has started and three or four years with the uh, 
national adoption, although probably two or three years of program delivery, it has shown to be scalable, reproducible, and meeting the needs. So that's not to say other means of providing critical care medicine are bad, but I think we've worked on, and I think we're feeling confident that this is is one that works. Certainly, you know, uh, it's desirable for people, uh, particularly who are younger, they want to make a difference and they want to practice critical care medicine, and some of them have not been trained in uh, pulmonary at the outset of their careers. And so providing different avenues and different ways of which the workforce needs can be met is, is okay. But I don't see pulmonary critical care medicine going away, although I would envision, uh, which is what's occurring right now, that there will be other streams, either medical or surgical, anesthesiology and so forth, who will be contributing to those workforce needs, as you mentioned, David. Your second lesson learned is that developing formalized nationwide fellowship training is a powerful way to train a workforce. What do you see as advantages and disadvantages of this massive program development all at once rather than a slower progression with addition of more training programs over time? Yeah, here we, we actually we are taking advantage. There was no subspecialty training before, but there are like a subspecialty department, like a respiratory medicine department of a, like a cardiology. It's already been there, but we just didn't have structured uh, like a curriculum uh, uh, like now. That's why we, we don't think it's necessary to like a little by little progress. We just started a fellowship, three-year fellowship right away. So that is because the base is already there. And then the advantage really for fellowship training compared to before was pretty much knowledge, experience, accumulation, is the fellowship gave you a curriculum and the structure that you need this much knowledge and you need this level of competence. I think that's the biggest advantage for fellowship training. The disadvantage, I guess, is after the fellowship training, it has not been solved for example, here, if you finish fellowship training, your practice scope change, even your pay schedule change. But in a Chinese system, how does this fit into their existing system? Because that involves non-medical, like the level of salary requirement for promotion, all of that, that involves non-medical that has not been worked out yet. That may create a little bit, uh, you know, one uh, applicant, uh, you know, thinking about further training, what do they get from it? That's, uh, I guess, uh, is a disadvantage at this point. But eventually, it's going to work out. I mean, we sort of used a hybrid approach where we did start with some key centers and, and ran a pilot in some respects. And tested that pilot uh, from very different ways, and then it was scaled up. And the system, the environment in China is, you know, it's different than it is in, in many other areas. But within that environment, they have the capability to encourage, mandate, you know, national uptake, which is what happens uh, r- right now. So in many regards, 
you know, when you think about changing a healthcare system delivery with subspecialty organization in a country with a population, you know, just shy of, uh, what, 20% of the world's population to make such a difference and to implement a program over such an accelerated point of view, I think is, is noteworthy. One thing, and, 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 you know, Renly mentioned this is, well, so what? So for instance, if I I'm a candidate, I go to PCCM, I have all this training, all these capabilities, I'm viewed as an expert, I know what I can do, but if it doesn't equate to um, higher rank or more pay, you know, people are going to say, well, what's, what's the big deal, why? And so some things still have to catch up, and, and it's in constant evolution. The system is still in constant evolution. So there is efforts now to ensure that candidates who are trained and receive this extra training are recognized as such. Now, your third lesson learned is that dual certifications in pulmonary medicine and critical care medicine can readily and practically be simplified into a single subspecialty. Can you tell us more about how testing and certification for this combined specialty occurs in your fellowships? Yeah, we just run one exam that will have both pulmonary medicine and critical care. For, for the graduation. I think this is a practical way because, uh, for example, myself uh, is a board certified in four specialties here in America, internal medicine, pulmonary, critical care, and sleep. You know, every 10 years, you have to recertify. So then each test is uh, one year, like four years take total. So by the time you finish one, you have to be pretty much getting ready for the next cycle. Then the exam kind of become a sort of a burden here and leave alone, you know, the high registration fee all that. So I think if you strongly believe pulmonary critical medicine is a way to go, might as well combine the exam into one to simplify the process. Yeah, I mean, from a practical point of view, the evaluation during and at the end of uh, the training parallels what we do, uh, you know, here in North America. So, for instance, our informal evaluation, this formal rotation evaluations, and there's structures and, and supports for that. A final in-training evaluation is, uh, is a formal examination. So, for the first few years, uh, that examination was constructed with the help of uh, expertise from uh, CHEST that was marked uh, by CHEST, uh, was, you know, determined who would be uh, successful and who would not. There were candidates who did not pass the final examination. Um, and so it was quite a structured, rigid, so that uh, the standards, the goals and such were upheld. And then now the, uh, the whole process has transitioned to the Chinese-led uh, uh, but, you know, Renly and so forth continues to uh, provide some uh, leadership and guidance. Your final lesson learned is that the organization of pulmonary and critical care medicine departments should be standardized and goal-oriented towards pre-established standards in order to facilitate optimal delivery of training. It seems that these departments were formed in order to facilitate education. Now that the fellowships are established, how will the departments that were formed balance the priorities of education with those of patient care, research, and other competing interests? 
That's a very good point to list as a separate point. You know, the clinical department, I guess, is everywhere the same. They have to be busy for patient care, for research, and for education. Usually, if you don't have some rigid frame and standard, the education will be the last one, last priority for the department. So once uh, you, 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 you have this standardized goal-oriented uh, program uh, standard, uh, then you have to have uh, put education as a priority. So positively, in, in the past, there is no such thing called a program director because each position has to be approved by the uh, government, uh, you, you, your hospital can have this uh, position. So program uh, director is all part-time. So probably they only spend maybe 20% of their effort on education. That is, this is make uh, education not a, a high priority. And now with this rigid requirement, it changes. First, you have to have a full time, at least 75% of the time for the program director has to be spent on the education itself. And the other thing is now you have a standard national exam, certification exam process. If for a department you graduate, let's say, half of them flunk the exam, then it simply doesn't look good. That itself become an incentive. So that, that's, I guess, the importance of a pre-established standard. And it's a great question, but it also applies to training programs in the United States or Canada or, or elsewhere. And so the investment at the front to appropriately train, equip, uh, not only programs but also institutions, to ensure that their candidates who come in have certain expertise, are well-trained, are able to pass and succeed. That discipline, setting those standards, adhering to them, and then making sure that you have formal evaluation is important. And so um, there will be times when that balance is challenged or it's difficult for whatever the reason. But having at various steps and in various different ways ensuring and encouraging adherence to uh, what the program should be doing, wants to do, and those eventual goals and evaluation, I think, are important. What further interventions or changes are you hoping to make to further refine the fellowship programs that you've developed? You have to first establish and make the training believe they are into a program that represent the future. And you want to be a good doctor, you need to go through this process. So what is, uh, we have been doing is uh, even now, you know, that's why I end up with the 20 professorship. Is I'm running through Internet a case discussion two times a week for the last 10 years almost for the, for the trainees in, from this 20 hospital, like a going around the style of case discussion is still ongoing. Because I feel I'm in a program, uh, in, in something everybody is doing. And the other thing is uh, in their national uh, the annual meeting, usually trainee has no, uh, just go and listen, and they don't have uh, a say. Now they created this uh, program just for trainee. 
to speak, uh, even in the, in the symposium and this kind of thing, uh, the, our fellow and the graduate from our fellowship uh, all have opportunity to speak on national uh, platform. And uh, those are things that just uh, for everybody to recognize uh, fellowship training is important, uh, and this uh, really create a higher level of uh, specialist. And I, I hope that become a, a norm. I would just echo the the recognition of uh, the expertise, the achievement of individuals who have successfully trained and uh, achieved the uh, certification in PCCM is something that still needs to uh, to be done. I think one thing in looking back, you know, the training culture was a little bit different in China in that in rounds, for instance, trainees would present. Uh, patients offer their opinions, differential diagnosis, and so forth. And then, uh, depending on your level of training and expertise, would you know eventually land on what a department head or the chief would say, and it would never be questioned. There would be very little back and forth. And so in our visits to the hospital, but also in our training to program directors and faculty that we provided, we did emphasize the value, the, the impact, the beneficial impact of a discussion. And so, uh, you know, genuinely mentioning that we as faculty, myself, for instance, as a uh, faculty or program director when I was, we would learn from our trainees and that it is a, is, is a discussion. And there are times when it's important to challenge in a very respectful, professional fashion what someone was doing because sometimes patients are tough and the diagnosis is not uh, uh, readily apparent. And so we need to keep an open mind. So to see that evolving in a, uh, you know, initially very hesitant fashion, but then in a more genuine way, I think was also uh, something that is important and I think in the end is going to help the training programs and outcomes as well. Great. Now, CHEST assisted in the reform and formal establishment of a pulmonary and critical care medicine subspecialty in collaboration with the Chinese Thoracic Society and the Chinese Association of CHEST Physicians. Can you tell us more about the role CHEST played in this process? The test uh, played a key role in the, the original program is called the China Test uh, PCCM Fellowship. Test actually appointed me as 30% of effort uh, to spend on this uh, away from my home institution. So I, I, I pretty much spent at least uh, three to four months total time in China to, to get this going in the beginning. That's one big thing. The other thing is uh, CHEST really has uh, established uh, a very nice way, uh, image of an international organization uh, in China. you not just a big start. You actually do real things. Uh, and... Uh, that is a one uh, aspect. For example, uh, sadly, like I mentioned, Dr. Rosen was a key player in that. When he passed away last year, you cannot imagine the emotion response from the Chinese colleague, the trainees who have interacted with him. Simply because we spent so much time, we really made a difference there. This program uh, and where we are today wouldn't have happened without Renly. 
for so many reasons and for such a, a, a period of time, um, you know, his time, his commitment, his uh, leadership, his ability to connect, uh, to interact, to provide, you know, insights, just uh, full stop. Uh, contribution just, just can't, can't be measured. And I would say that even if Renly wasn't on the podcast today. But um, our Chinese colleagues, you know, under the professional societies of the Chinese Association of Chess Physicians, the Chinese Thoracic Society, were looking for help with the training program. And, and that occurred because we were getting together, we were listening, we were discussing, and looking at potential ways to sort of move forward. From our point of view, from Chess' point of view, we felt that we could provide some assistance. And so there began kind of a, an authentic commitment that perhaps was a little bit different from some other relationships that we have where it's kind of a veneer, uh, things are good, you shake hands or uh, smile during a visit, and then nothing much happens. In this case, it was much more genuine, multifaceted throughout uh, an institution and over an extended period of time. And so I think this was not only fundamental to the success, but it was also importantly noticed and appreciated by our Chinese colleagues. And I think that together with the guidance and the uh, able to connect through Renly and so forth was very important and I think an important learning for me as an individual as well. Now, in light of current events, can you please tell us about how development and implementation of this subspecialty training has affected the response to COVID-19 in China and the treatment of patients? Oh, this uh, PCCM uh, really so you know in the title of our report is called the strategy development. As in that, uh, we, we we mean to say you know fellowship training is the way to go, but we never imagined uh, strategically it was uh, already prepared uh, the Chinese uh, medical professional to to deal with the COVID nineteen. Simply put, uh, the epidemic in Wuhan pretty much overwhelmed their medical system, uh, crashed the medical system. Uh, 3,000 uh, medical professionals got infected. So the Chinese government uh, dispatched, uh, recruited a total 42,000 uh, medical professionals from all over the country to go to Wuhan to support the the, the medical system and what uh, are the specialty if you look into this physician uh, nurse uh, at least half or more than half are from PCCM department even back home in each city the designated screening and uh, or designated hospital dealing with this patient with suspected case is also pretty much based in PCCM program. I think uh, this really made a big, big difference in there and the turning the scaring uh, up trending each day. So many new patients now rapidly turned around. Almost now they, the new case is almost zero every day in the whole country. And PCCM played a fundamental role in this. We had reached out to our colleagues in China during and at the height of this crisis to uh, just let them know that we were thinking about them and, and so forth. And the feedback we've received, the personal 
feedback and also from professional entities and societies and so forth uh, was exactly that, that the training that was, that was uh, you know, begun years ago and has now sort of grown to involve the 79 sites wasn't planned for something like this, but it enabled them. And so much of the work, much of the leadership and the approach in managing this completely overwhelming uh, issue that is now affecting us, that the training is, is sort of enabled them to uh, be best prepared as best you can for this. And so that, that personal feedback, that loop back, uh, I, I think is heartening. Having said that, this is a big problem. And no matter how well you're trained and how expert, it, it, it's overwhelming. If you could each give our listeners a closing thought on what you have learned from your experiences, what do you want our listeners to take away from this discussion? I think, that, you know, if, if you, as a medical professional, if you forget about uh, politics, uh, it, the one thing you realize, no matter where you go, people are people, and uh, medicine is medicine. So in that sense, it's the same. And then to become a good doctor, uh, how do you achieve that goal is also similar everywhere in the world. In this, I think it's Chess really made a difference, and uh, really hope chess uh, will continue to to do this because uh, fellowship training is not uh, uh, as developed in other part of the world like in America, and hope the whole world can benefit from this. Yeah, you know we often concentrate, and you know differences become apparent, but. Throughout this process and visiting so many hospitals for so many years, it's striking when you see patients who are short of breath or ill, they're exactly the same as, as the ones I've cared for. Our colleagues uh, in China have the same goals, the same aspirations. They want to be best trained uh, to be able to deliver the best possible care for their patients. And so those are it's just identical. And I guess the other thing is that CHEST as an organization, you begin to fully appreciate that... Uh, but with nearly 19,000 members, there's a lot of expertise, a lot of people who are willing to give of their time, are willing to support uh, the cause in the organization with its goal of providing education, outcomes of best possible care, and so forth, was a perfect fit for this, not only to be involved, but to uh, provide leadership in this regard. So it's something that when people say it's so tough and you can't do, this is a good example of a very large issue uh, that, in fact, you can address, uh, not by yourself, but with the help of many. Wonderful. Well, a big thank you to Dr. Shulman, Dr. Chow, and Dr. Marcinic for a great conversation, and a big thank you to our chess community for joining us. I'm Gretchen Winter, and this is the Chess Podcast. Until next time. <laughs>